This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. Over Under Movies and all the Playlist podcasts are sponsored by Mubi, a curated online cinema streaming a selection of exceptional independent, classic, and award-winning films from around the globe. Mubi's film experts handpick every single film they show. Each day they present a new gem and you have one month to watch it. Plans start as low as $5.99 a month. Visit mubi.com slash the playlist to start a special 30-day free trial. Movie's current highlights include Lawrence Anyways, Canada's resident infant terrible Xavier Dolan's third film, and its unyielding commitment to its central character's transition and plight is perhaps his most accomplished and thematically rich film to date. Carlo Lazzani's Genre Maestro, a double bill of stellar genre films from the late 1960s by Italian director and screenwriter Carlo Lazzani, including Wake Up and Die and Kill and Pray. Agnes Vardis Couplets. The Agnes Vardis series continues. They're currently also showing Le Petit Amour, The Creatures, and One Sings, The Other Doesn't. Once again, to start your free trial, visit mubi.com slash the playlist. Now, on to the show. Over the line! Hello, and welcome to another episode of Over Under Movies, the podcast in which we pick one overrated movie and one underrated movie, similar in genre, style, tone, or however we may see fit, and we discuss them. I'm Ryan Oliver. This is Oktay Ege Kozak. And today we're doing something a little bit different. Uh, We actually don't have an overrated pick for you today, so uh, there likely won't be any negativity. But uh, these picks Octay teased on the last episode, these are sort of underrated or well, underrated and underseen, difficult to find uh, movies that are in the Criterion Collection. Uh, Or at the very least, there is no Blu-ray available for any of these movies. Some are on DVD, some are incredibly difficult to find. Um, and instead of the usual two films, uh, there's three films uh, we're going to be discussing for you today. So you get a get an extra bonus there. Um, and we're going to start with a 1956 film, uh, Kanichikawa's The Burmese Harp. So, Octave, um, why did you choose? This is a pretty, like, pretty, I would say, I don't know if beloved's the right word, but it's a pretty well-loved movie. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, what what um, what caused you to pick this as an underrated pick? Well, it's a pretty well-loved movie among, you know, cinephiles who are into Japanese cinema, um, you know, who are into uh, classics, you know, foreign classics, art house, the art house crowd and everything. But if you were to ask a... Um, kind of a, uh, you know, general audience or a kind of a, um, you know, beginner film buff, uh, you know, to, to talk about like some of the best anti-war films ever made or some of the best uh, pacifist uh, films ever made, I don't think the Burmese Heart would really come up. Um, it's a beloved uh, Japanese film, uh, to be sure. And uh, the one of the reasons I, I picked it 
uh, is the same reason I picked all three of these films is that um, Criterion uh, hasn't really released a Blu-ray of it yet. Uh, this is one of the one of the three films that is kind of easily available on DVD, and it's a it's a beautiful looking um, black and white film that like really deserves a restoration and a, a Blu-ray release. And I feel like as far as people who are into anti-war films it's a film that should really be uh seen by more people and cherished especially around the time um when uh you know the tensions between countries and people are uh at an all-time high which seems to be the case pretty much all the time so it's a film that's kind of timeless in the in the story that it tries to tell uh, but I find this film to be uh, one of the truly moving um, and one of the truly successful anti-war films, one of the truly successful uh, pro-pacifist uh, films. And one of the reasons behind that is uh, is Kon Ichikawa does this uh, really clever thing by adapting this, uh, this novel, um, which I think was uh, published... In, in various uh, parts. It was kind of like a serial. And the novel was meant to kind of uh, give hope to the Japanese youth after the their this devastating defeat uh, after World War II uh, in a way that was kind of um, a bit more nationalist than the, the film kind of took the story towards. And uh, it, he takes it and he makes it... Um, a very universal story about kind of the, the pointlessness uh, of war. And he manages to get this point across without the kind of uh, inherent uh, hypocrisy of anti-war films because uh, a lot of the times, even if you're trying to make an anti-war film, it's hard not to get swept up in the excitement of the war action, um, no matter how you shoot it, especially if... Uh, a great filmmaker, a great technical filmmaker, let's say um, Steven Spielberg shoots it and he wants to show you the horrors of war, but at the same time, the technical aspects of it, you know, and like Saving Private Ryan are really engaging and exciting. And uh, it's 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 almost, uh, I think it was Truffaut who said, like, it's, it's impossible to make a anti-war film while showing the actual war. And uh, Ichikawa does this really clever thing by picking picking the story by telling the story because it takes place right after the end of World War II. So you don't really get to see a lot of battle scenes. And um, the story is about uh, a young soldier uh, who's kind of like a gentle soul who walks around with this uh, this Burmese harp, which is kind of like a crescent-shaped uh, uh, harp that's kind of portable. And he plays it to kind of uh, keep the spirits up of his, you know, his b battalion, and he's sent on this mission that kind of gives him a really devastating view of uh, what really takes place in war. How people can pointlessly kind of kill themselves and each other, and uh, it basically, you know, there's this turn that happens within him when he sees all this devastation. Um, that he decides to basically become a monk. At first, he, he steals a monk's clothes because he wants to get back to his battalion as soon as possible. And then when he starts seeing um, people who think he's a monk, that he starts seeing people who are looking for some hope, some um, 
in this in this kind of crazy war torn uh, Burma that that he's kind of like traveling through, and he sees all the 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 destruction and the bodies everywhere, and he kind of gradually becomes this pacifist who just refuses to go back, and uh, it's kind of weird to me, and we can get into this a little bit too. Uh, it's I kind of feel bad that I picked. Um, you know, when we did our year-end uh, overrated films, I feel kind of bad that one of my overrated picks was Hacksaw Ridge because uh, we talked about that movie in detail on that episode. But I feel like that would have been a perfect uh, overrated pick for uh, the Burmese harp. I was waiting for you to get to that point. Yeah, the way yeah. you kept saying pacifist and like true anti-war film. I'm like, all right, any second now he's going to bring up Hacksaw Ridge. Come on, just, yeah, just bring exactly. it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, but it's 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 isn't it perfect? Like the the way it is that very they, they match together and uh, the way that uh, you know. Konichikawa kind of follows the exact opposite route by showing his character refusing to participate in um, in battle at all. Not yep. even like, you know, the That's whole the point thing. of... Him and uh, yeah. Mishumisa and uh, Desmond Doss like have a very similar... Like they, they joined the war uh, for, for pride of country, like for like nationalism, because they believe that was the thing that they should do, even though they're both pacifists. And it shows them, like you said, yeah, shows the him without shows him with his harp desmond doss never carries a gun um they, they do they do but this movie like but you don't you, get you know, the fetishization uh of war you don't you don't get this kind right. of like the the empty heroics of it you, you don't get like our side is the hero and the other side is the enemy and like just does this and hexor ridge does this um really pedantic way of like addressing that issue of him like kind of helping out the japanese soldier which is kind of like just squeezed in there just so uh, the movie can escape like the accusations of jingoism um but uh in in the burmese harp it's a very human story like it's it's one of the first like kind of pro pacifist uh world war 2 films uh maybe the first uh to come out of japan especially after the giant defeat that they had so it's a it's not a it's kind of a bitter pill to swallow for them but it's it's also like a very hopeful movie about um the kind of uh like about how people how someone can understand how pointless all this killing is how pointless all this war is and in a way it's not saying like war is bad because people die it's almost saying that war is terrible because human beings were meant for so much more and uh you know, so so I love this film because of that. I think it's an incredibly touching film. I think it's one of the best uh, kind of anti-war films ever made because it doesn't show you the war. It doesn't, even if it tries to show you the horrors of war, like it's, you always get this kind of like dichotomy and this this film doesn't have that. So in a way, it truly is an anti-war film. But uh, before we get to the, like even deeper into it, what's what are your, some of your overall thoughts about it? Was this the first time you've seen it? It's the first time I've seen it. Um, I, I thought it's a very beautiful movie. And I think, um, you know, not not just like, you know, it's a very somber movie and also like dealing with like a lot of guilt, not just this, um, you know, not just the pointlessness of it all. Um, well, there is that, too, but just sort of like the guilt that each character feels like there's the scene where he goes to the one battalion and tells them that, uh, hey, we're surrendering to the British, so you need to surrender. And they're like, no, we're not going to. We're going to fight to our death. And he's like, all right, anybody who who dies, those are those are on you. He tells the captain of that battalion. Mm-hmm. It's like, that's that's on you. 
Um, and you see the and confusion then, in him where he just doesn't understand why people would be so... You know, it doesn't look like anybody doesn't believe him that the war has ended. Like, yeah. there, there's no... Uh, you know, and it's it's the kind of situation where you expect it to be the, like, and maybe another director would have like veered it towards that to like turn it into some kind of confusion. But there isn't any dialogue in that scene where anybody says like, "Oh, we don't believe you that the war has ended." All they're saying is that we we're, were just meant to fight to the yeah, death. Yeah, all they're saying is that we were meant to fight to the death. We were meant to die, and we will do that regardless of the fact that if you know Japan surrendered or whatever happened. And uh, not only do they take their own lives, they kind of like take some British lives in the process. I mean, the whole battle ensues. And I think that's kind of the, the, the Kickstarter for uh, that character to kind of go through this, uh, the beginning of this like kind of journey into uh, pacifism. Right. Well, cause he, he tell like, like you said, he tells them that that's going to be on him, but ultimately he feels the weight of those deaths because it's like, he goes, not only does he see the pointlessness of all this killing and death and he sees the bodies, but he also, because of the experience he had gone through because of that attack, he wasn't able to go to those camps and tell them to surrender. So he feels that immense guilt that like part of that is on him. Hmm. Um, and then same thing, same thing with his camp, the officer who sent him that way, like keeps saying, I, I understand where he's coming from, or I understand what Mishmish is going through because, uh, because I feel just as guilty, um, if not more so than he does. Yeah, it's as much of a story of his, his superior, um, as it is I... about Mishmisa. And, um, uh, and that part of the story is also like kind of fascinating to me because there are a lot of films, um, the uh, Billy Lynn's long halftime walk is the most recent one that kind of um, that kind of uh, goes through that fine line, tries to uh, find a balance in that, like, you know, you, you make a film about like the camaraderie and the love and the bond between troops, um, mm-hmm. but also not make it, you know, xenophobic or jingoistic or not make it kind of the pro whatever war it deals with. In the case of uh, Ang Lee's film, it's the 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 most recent Iraq war. And um and that's a very hard thing to pull off. And I think it's it's hard to kind of show that like, oh yeah, these soldiers have all this love for each other, but we're also not trying to make it look like we're also not trying to glamorize war. And that's a very hard thing to pull off. And I think Ang Lee kind of um kind of failed in that respect and there are a lot of uh other films that kind of fail in that respect that kind of um when you play both sides it kind of comes off as like you know if you're pro-military i'm sure the movie's gonna look um uh very pro-military if you're if you're kind of anti-war the movie's still gonna look a little bit like you know it's just too much in love with the soldiers or something like people might get the wrong idea from it and i feel like in um the burmese harp Ichikawa finds this perfect balance between showing how much the this battalion cares about uh, their soldier and how much his superior cares about him, how much they want him to come back to them, and um, there's this there's this kind of um, beautiful contrast between how the other Japanese battalion treats him. You know, they call him a coward for asking them to surrender and uh yellow belly and all that stuff and um and then the kind of the opposite happens with his battalion where um you know when people start to find out there's a little bit of a mystery at the center of the story where you know the the soldiers are in this um 
camp, uh, English camp after surrendering. And uh, they start to suspect that this monk that's walking around is is their their friend. And uh, they come up with all these like crazy and kind of funny ways of like, you know, they, they train a parrot to go up yeah. and like talk to him to tell him to like come back home and... Uh, and it all culminates in this in this gorgeous final scene um, that I don't want to spoil that, but it's it's just you know fills you with so much of this emotional release for for all of the characters for both the battalion and him as a monk, and um, but he finds a way to um, kind of show the friendship and the camaraderie between the troops while also firmly. Uh, kind of putting its foot down about like how pointless what they were fighting against was or how how pointless that the 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 act the actual act of war was it's not a political film by any means and it's not specifically about world war 2 that's why it's so universal you can watch it now and apply it to any war that pretty much you can think of yeah so let me kind of talk about uh how especially for the 50s uh what do you think about the films kind of really honest depiction of of um the aftermath of war i mean it's it's kind of shocking to me to watch a film that takes place in the 50s that really doesn't um shy away from showing you like you know usually if this was a hollywood movie all you, if you're going to depict like dead bodies pile of dead bodies in a after the war they'll just like put a couple of extras to like lay on the ground yeah <laughs> and that, that would be the aftermath been, of the it, war yeah. exactly it wouldn't have been this like huge pile of limbs and yeah skull and, fragments and just yeah. like horrifying and just, uh visuals and, and it and, just, and i can't yeah. Yeah, and I can't for the life of me think of a movie from this era because it really wasn't until like the late 60s through the 70s that like movies that that didn't shy away from the horrors of war uh, started to come out in response to the Vietnam War. But, you know, because World War Two was well, I guess World War One was technically the Great War, but like, you know, World War Two, because it was seen as as a victory, at least, you know, so like American films certainly would not have dared uh, to show that. Um, in any way, because they 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 didn't so, feel it a as bad, uh, you know, because it was it was a victory. Do you think uh, it was necessary, or do you think it was gratuitous in this movie? Yeah. Um, I mean, I would say necessary. I won't say it's either. I guess um, it, that may be cheating the question a little <laughs> bit, but uh, I think it's effective within the movie. I think that uh, you know, I think it's still like the movie is so somber in its tone and so sorrowful that I think you would feel that uh, you would feel what the character was feeling regardless whether you showed that or not. Hmm. Um, but I still think it's, it's affecting because you put it like you deep in the perspective of the character and you see that horror and you see that, you know, potential guilt they're feeling about the maybe potentially being partially responsible for that. I think that it's effective. Um, gratuitous necessary i don't know it doesn't really factor in i just no matter what i it it deepened it deepened uh what i felt for that character uh and you know i was i was more invested not that i wasn't invested already but it helped me become more invested in his journey yeah that's that's a great way of putting it i mean you're right i think that the filmmaking is so powerful and ichikawa does such a good job of of um making it 
the story very subjective but universal at the same time. You can definitely get inside the mind of this character and go what he's going through. Uh, but at the same time, the themes that he's going that the film presents are very universal. Uh, that's what makes the film so kind of unique and beautiful. And it's yeah, he he was he was a brave filmmaker in that sense. And um, and I applaud that bravery. But at the same time, I do see where you're coming from. It's almost like he almost did too good of a job as a filmmaker to kind of sell you on what this character is going through that if you didn't see all of that kind of violent uh grimy aftermath of the skulls and bodies like like almost like a hundred bodies all just like piled up like it almost looks like that the footage you see of like uh the holocaust or the the concentration camps uh right it's It's almost documentarian like that it's not because it isn't stylized or showy it's it feels it feels real. It feels real than any sort of like visceral yeah. action war movie could uh, deliver you. And his his, uh, ca- his camera also has like a docu docudrama feel to it. He doesn't yeah. use a lot of like it's it's static a lot, but also like the way that he frames things. It's just like they're, they're all, there's always some form of realism to it. Like it's it doesn't feel. Um, artificial like he, right. he used a lot of static shots just like Yasujiro Ozu but uh Ozu always films like Ozu always feels like you know you're watching a dramatization it's almost like yes the, the, well like, it's the tone it's the tone of Ozu you know yeah, that's yeah it's like and that's, this, so it's this, a tone thing as well yeah absolutely the, this this feels like it could like you could be very well uh you know at least like the landscape shots and the wandering like feels like you're watching a documentary uh at times which is which is not a diss, that is a compliment uh, mm-hmm. for a movie like this. It's, it's very much a compliment. Yeah, so before we move on to the uh, next one, um, before we move on to the streets of uh, 50s Rome, um, do you have anything else to say about the movie? Or like any? do you recommend it? Would you think yes. people should seek it out? I recommend it. Um, I do think that uh, you can rent it at a video store if you're still lucky to have one. Uh, I also viewed this on Filmstruck, uh, Criterion's hmm. uh, streaming service that they partnered with uh, Turner Classic Movies. Um, so it is it is not available on Blu-ray, but it is at least available via their streaming service. Yeah, and is it was it HD? Um, no, it was not HD, unfortunately. So they still need to work on the transfer. But at the very least... It is HD, SD. This is a movie that should be seen regardless, and there mm-hmm. is at least accessibility to it. Yeah, and uh, uh, if you have a region-free Blu-ray player, the, uh, there's an English, um, there's a British Blu-ray from uh, Eureka Masters of Cinema series uh, that looks really good. Uh, but yeah, this is still a film that you know, even the Blu-ray has a lot of um, kind of blotches and scratches on the, the the film print and everything this is a film that should really go through like a nice 4k uh restoration especially a classic of the stature but uh do you want to move on to um to the second film let's do it and i i have a question for you about this uh this pick um this is the next one is uh federigo fellini's 1957 the knights of cabiria Una piccola donna sola e indifesa che vive nel male senza perdere la speranza del bene. Un angelo con le ali nel fango che non si stanca di lottare per non far spegnere la sua fede negli uomini. La storia di Cabiria è fatta di avventure comiche e drammatiche. Um, and so, while this is interestingly enough, as far as like keeping with the theme of underrated criterions, 
This is the hardest movie to find mm-hmm. on the Criterion Collection of the three. However, it is in the top 250 of IMDb. It won the Oscar for Best Foreign Language Film in 1957. So this is a it's a pretty beloved movie. And I was just curious how you approached the underrated stature of the movie. Is it because it's a difficult uh, criterion disc mm-hmm. to find or is the movie itself um, underrated to you? Yeah, it's it's a combination of the two. It's certainly a more famous film, uh, I feel like, than uh, the other two on this list. It's a, it's a combination of the fact that it's such It was remade a, also? Yeah, it was remade by Bob Fosse, the uh, Sweet Charity, the musical... Um, which we can get to in a little bit, but um, yeah, it, it's it's kind of a combination of both. It's it's it. On one hand, um, I do understand that there's a little bit of hypocrisy there because I am going to say that you know I picked it as an underrated mainly because of how uh, accomplished and beloved this film is, and Criterion had only has like this out of print DVD. That was out, I feel like, in the late '90s or something, and it's, and it doesn't it's, look great, to no, be honest. No. Uh, it's, I mean, it's for late '90s, you know, classic, one of Criterion's classic late '90s releases of old films. It's it's on par with what they released back at that time. So yeah, it, it has a lot of problems. And um, sorry, Knights of Knights of Kiberia doesn't have that um, perfect Criterion uh, kind of a. Uh, release uh, transfer uh, and even like you know if you look at uh, Burmese Harp and uh, the third film we're going to talk about um, they at least get like pretty decent standard definition DVD transfers and in this case it's like not only is it not a great transfer it's it's almost incredibly hard to find but then at the same time so that's that's one of the reasons why I feel like I, I that's one of the reasons why I picked it as underrated another reason is that even though, yes, it, it won the best uh, foreign film, it's a beloved Fellini film, uh, but I feel like, you know, it's my favorite Fellini film. Uh, I think it's the one film that perfectly balanced to me what I really love about Fellini, like his um, his Italian neorealist uh, influences mixed with um, his kind of more exuberant, lively, uh, joyful um uh, eccentric, eccentric approach, uh, almost, almost surrealist approach to life, which kind of went a little bit overboard for me when he switched from black and white to color, and like some of the films during the like late sixties, early seventies that he made. Um, if you don't, maybe Amar Kord from the early seventies uh, is the one that comes closest to his like more kind of grounded humanist um, films of his late late fifties era. But like around that time that Knights of Kiberia, um, he made Knights of Kiberia. I mean, people usually talk about like Fellini's black and white masterpieces. People bring up, you know, La Dolce Vita, Eight and a Half, uh, La Strada. And uh, I feel like uh, it's kind of like one of those soft underrated picks. If if I didn't have, didn't also back it up with that, that Criterion, why isn't Criterion releasing this? Why is this out of print kind of thing? Um but yeah, it would have been kind of a soft underrated in the sense that, you know, we did, for example, um, just off the top of my head, like we did Adaptation. That was a soft underrated because I was like, well, you know, it's 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 a loved, it's, it's a film that a lot of people love, but it doesn't get as much love as Eternal Sunshine or uh, Being John Malkovich. So it's, it's kind of in that category. I feel like it doesn't get enough uh, love that it's a... Um, I I think it's this is an incredibly beautiful, charming, 
funny uh, film without being kind of saccharine. Like it's it's firmly planted in those two tones of like you know Fellini playfulness and all, but also like post World War Two again. Post World War Two, uh, Italy lost the war, and like post World War Two, like Italy devastation, and uh, that kind of like um, how does the working class kind of survive in this hostile and harsh uh, environment, and it kind of like goes into both of those at once, and it creates this like wonderful synergy between the two. It's a film that's kind of full of life and melancholic at the same time. And uh, all of this is kind of um, rests on the shoulders of Gietta Messina, who was uh, Fellini's wife for his basically his entire life, uh, their entire their entire lives. Um, and uh, Messina as uh, Kabiria, the you know, and first of all, this is the first. I feel like this is the first kind of hooker with a heart of gold movie, like decades before. Something like Pretty, Pretty Woman, Woman or like which would have been a perfect overrated for this. The yeah, whole time true. I was watching that's this, true. I was like, "Man, why didn't we not pair these two movies?" Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, while I was watching that, I was thinking of that too. It's just like, man, it's it's, it's the the concept of Pretty Woman, but without the Hollywood glamour around it. And Absolutely. it's a, it's you know it's it's kind of a uh, in the Fellini tradition, it's kind of an episodic film. It's about like these um, adventures that this uh, prostitute named uh, Kabiria has around Rome and she's kind of a wistful character. She is very like kind of uh, in your face and she can get aggressive, but that's kind of like a defense mechanism against how frail she really is and how like she, she just yearns for love. She just yearns to be like appreciated and loved. And no uh, matter how much she tries to pretend that she doesn't like, yeah, she's exactly. sit there and tell her friend, she's like, Nope, I don't need a man. Like, Oh, you need to get a man like me. Nope. I don't need that. I don't want that. But yeah, but, but at the same does. time, deep inside, there's this beautiful scene in it where, um, uh, she becomes, uh, this, she goes to this like random and every time like she gets into these adventures it just happens randomly. She's like walking down the street and like gets into this, like, she gets picked up by this like huge movie star and she thinks like she's living in this fairy tale. And then like suddenly she's kind of pulled back to reality and mm-hmm. realizes that she's basically nothing in the eyes of this person. And, you know, like, so there's, there are a lot of like mini big vignettes like that. And uh, yeah, Messina's performance might be my favorite female performance of film history of all time. She's amazing. I think she's incredible. Uh, I think maybe she got into the business of, uh, she was born a couple decades too late, I feel like, because she would have made for, uh, you know, you know, there's no such thing as like, like, what would you think of like as a great silent female comedian of the silent era? Like all of them are men. And yeah. I feel like Messina with her like expressive performance and it's just like her, her un- the unique way she handles herself in this film, like it would have made for like a great silent performance uh, as well. But yeah, I, I I adore this film, and uh, I wish you would just a better transfer of it would just come out. And uh, yeah, so that's that's one of my like little gripes with uh, Criterion. But um, yeah, before we go like deep into it again, what's your overall uh, thoughts on this? Was this the first time you've seen it? It's the first time I've seen it. Uh, I I loved it. I absolutely love this movie, and I think um, there there were a couple movies actually of the last couple years that. Uh, were on my top tens or at least close to my top tens that um 
that I was reminded of uh, from this movie that reminded me of the filmmakers behind those movies. Uh, I was thinking Heaven Knows What. Um, I was also thinking American Honey as well. Mm, uh, that, that I feel like there's like at least I mean, Heaven Knows What is a clear uh, downer. Uh, this movie is is more clearly this movie is much more like balanced and melancholic. And, and that movie is a clear downer. But it, that sort of that cycle that like movie each... also had like the surprisingly funny scenes in it where it shows that it's not all misery. Like it's, it <laughs> finds that like, so films like that, that don't shy away from like showing the, the, the kind of bad place that the characters are, are in, but also like showing that like they can still find some joy in their, their existence. You yeah, know, and this movie does it human. Yeah, and this movie does that absolutely perfectly. It's like it's just like an up and down cycle. It's like there's a high and then there's a low, and then there's the high of you know the like there there is joy to be had in this experience that you know by and large most people don't have. Um, so I think that's incredible. I think um, Cena's performance is uh, amazing. There are uh, just ton of memorable scenes in this movie, and just. You know, as abrasive as she can be, she's so she's incapable of not being charming to where like she she wins you over even amongst her abrasiveness. And you just you you feel defeated along with her, like after the end of each vignette, like when the low hits, like when the movie star kind of like shuffles her out of the her his house Mm -hmm. um, or the end, which I won't spoil for anybody. Uh, you just talk, talk about like, the lowest of low and then, you know, having a little bit of kind of high get in there. And doesn't he handle that like so beautifully, that ending? It's it's absolutely beautiful. I, I don't think, you know, there's clear dialogue exchange leading you to believe that the movie is going to end one way. But I don't think it could have ended any differently than the way he chose to end it. Like, I don't, I don't think there's a better note to end this movie on without... Yeah completely like snapping the audience out of and, the... and if someone pitched that ending the, the very ending to you now after what she goes through um just on paper it would sound like the hackiest like just the just the kind of easiest laziest way to like get people to like leave the theater on a high note i guess yes and no i mean i i don't want to completely uh spoil for people who haven't seen it mm-hmm. but i american honey kind of ends on a similar like bittersweet oh, i still haven't seen uh, that Oh, it's I love I love that movie. It's yeah. it's I, I recommend it. Um, but that movie has a very similar ending to me uh, to this movie. Um, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, <laughs> I'll yeah, leave it at that it, for it our listeners. Who be, it definitely shouldn't be spoiled. And it's it's a uh, it's the experience that makes the ending so beautiful rather than just talking about it, because, uh, you know, Nina Rota's uh, score, which, you know, a lot of people know him as the uh, the composer of the Godfather theme. But uh, he was attached to Fellini uh, for pretty much his entire career as well. And uh, yeah, this is my favorite of the Fellini scores uh, because it has such like grace and beauty to it. And yeah, the way that he uses the score to like slowly build up at the very end and the way that the very final image of the film. uh, People always talk about like how striking the, the final, final freeze frame of like 400 blows is because of the you know the fourth wall break and this this one i th- i feel like it should have been just as iconic and it's not talked about as much and i just love that little risk that uh the film takes yeah i i love the ending of it and i love the um that kind of balance that that fellini captures that doesn't really you know it's it's like it stands on this perfect precipice it stands on this precipice of like 
he has done La Strada. He has done all these like kind of more tragic, uh, you know, is influenced by uh, Italian neorealism movies. And then after Knights of Cupria, he's going to start moving on to the more surreal, the more eccentric. Uh, mm-hmm. So it just represents to me that like this, this, this great uh, meeting point between the two. And I feel like that's why I love that movie so much. Uh, and uh, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's underrated in the sense that I feel like I love all his, like not all, of course, uh, there's a lot of his films that I find annoying, especially as you move towards like the Satyricon and um, the late 60s, early 70s days. Uh, but uh, as among his like the black and white masterpieces that everybody cites, uh, it's, it's my, uh, it's my favorite. Yeah, no, it's, it's my, I, I'm not as well versed in my Fellini, but I've seen this, I've seen eight and a half. Um, and this is, yeah, I absolutely love this movie and need to do a deep dive on, uh, his filmography after this. Cause this is, uh, lovely. Yeah. I, think, I guess like that to, to go into, uh, from there, uh, to maybe talk about, like, I would really heartily recommend La Dolce Vita. Uh, I know it's, it's on my list. It's a great follow up to this. La Dolce Vita is a harder film to swallow because if you watch it almost, it's almost like those, um, you have to kind of get the satire to really enjoy it. And a lot of people don't. Uh, it's 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 kind of like those. Um, you know, we talk about like the the wrong influence of films like Scarface or uh, Wolf of Wall Street that people can watch it and think of like, you know, the, Scarface has a lot of fans who glorify the violence in it, and glorify Tony Montana. But the the point of it was that Tony Montana was supposed to be a tragic figure, not a right. uh, glorified figure. And La Dolce Vita is kind of like that. It's it's you have to kind of go into it knowing that uh fellini's approach was just like kind of to uh to chastise and brutally um uh criticize the uh the kind of tabloid and uh media around the time which which has gotten like infinitely worse since then i mean it's <laughs> it's not even you watch that movie now and the the kind of criticism that he puts upon it uh, it almost looks quaint uh, in comparison to what we're dealing with today. But right, we're uh, living in net, living in network times. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, but but uh, but yeah, it's it's a film that like it's also like a lot of people get the wrong message out of it, and it's it's a film that I didn't like when I first watched it because I was like, this is just a bunch of like just oh, isn't Italy and fashion and like all this like glorious stuff that it peddles because that's the that's the message you kind of get from people who love it. Like the, the fashion people and the, um, the glitzy people love this movie because it's about Rome and like, they bring out like the, the famous scene and the, the fountain and all that, like the romantic scenes. And then they don't, they kind of leave behind all the stuff that's kind of like really harshly criticizes that culture. Uh, so that's a great film to, to, uh, check out. La Strada on the other hand is the, um, so it's almost like, La Dolce Vita is on the uh, um, the more fun, playful side of Knights of Kiberia, but on the on the very other end, uh, the film that he made right before Knights of Kiberia, La Strada, is uh, on the kind of um, more serious, uh, tragic side of, uh, and that also has Gietta Messina in it and one of her best performances again. Uh, so that's one that I feel like um, audiences who might not be really into uh, Fellini's filmography should check out, but. First, I would say, um, as a personal recommendation, if you can find it, uh, <laughs> watch uh, Knights of Kiberia. And I don't think it's even available on uh, streaming services. 
it is not. It's one of those things where, again, oh if God, you're lucky man. enough like us to live near a video store, I rented it at Scarecrow. Um, so that's how I watched that late 90s DVD. But it's, uh, yeah, it's unfortunately, I think there is a DVD that you can purchase, like that is available, like you can buy it online. It's not Criterion, though. Hmm. And maybe uh, that's like a better transfer. I don't know. But I have the Criterion version as well. And, uh, yeah, man, it's like uh, this is one of those films that needs a 4K restoration stat. Uh, just release yep, it on absolutely. HD. It's, this it episode is, is basically just, just us begging for begging please put criterion. this out. Yeah, 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 definitely. <laughs> <laughs> please put this well, out. And uh, uh, the, um, the third one is going to be kind of like the same, even though I'm, I appreciate that it at least got a release because of the controversy that surrounds it. Uh, but do you want to move on so to that one? Let's do that. So the third and final movie we'll be discussing is uh, Samuel Fuller's White Dog. Okay, look at me. Come on, look here. Look at this. Look at the camera. Come on. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Good boy. Good job. There we go. Right there. Oh, oh, that's great. Look at me. Oh, that's really good. This is not going to hurt you. Which, as, as Octa just pointed out, was plenty controversial upon its release so much so that paramount pictures pretty much buried it they buried it entirely and only screened it like throughout the country uh in the year since the movie came out in 1982 and then criterion eventually released the dvd i think in 2008 and it was the very first time the movie had ever been available uh on home video if my research served me right Mm -hmm. um so, I mean, I think that, that this almost goes without saying why you chose this one with an underrated, but I want to hear it from you, uh, why why you chose it. Yeah, finally, I feel like this is the one that has a pretty clear explanation. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't <laughs> even released. Like, give me a break. Yeah, uh, Yeah, it was, uh, this is one of those cases, like, I love the NAACP. I love, uh, you know, as, as a liberal, uh, I love what they're doing, but boy, did they get this one wrong. Um, this, is, uh, this is a film that... Um, uh, Samuel Fuller is a director. I don't know if you're like really familiar with his work, but um, he's a director who never shied away from brutally exploring uh, social issues in in America, and uh, this is definitely and very much in his wheelhouse. And he did not pull any punches while making this, uh, while executing the story either. And I think uh, the the story uh, it's about. Um, a young actress it's based on something that actually happened to an actress uh and the actress's uh writer boyfriend actually turned the story into a novel um their experiences into a novel but uh yeah it's it's about an actress who kind of um almost runs over a dog and or runs over a dog actually and then you know uh kind of adopts him because the real owners don't show up and then gradually it starts to uh, come out that uh, this dog is a white dog, which is uh, a dog that was trained specifically to attack and kill black people. Uh, which the fact that that is actually a thing in itself uh, makes this film really kind of hard to even think about. Uh, but um, the, and then the rest of the story is basically about this uh, this black animal trainer uh, obsessed with uh, kind of weeding out the inherent racism that was programmed into this dog's mind from when uh, he was basically a puppy. And I guess, you know, NAACP and some civil rights group that heard about just the film's plot without even watching it uh, threatened to boycott the film. uh, And 
Paramount then pulled the film and it was released like briefly in Europe and a couple of other places and wasn't even get it didn't even get like a it kind of destroyed Samuel Fuller like he kind of gave up on American filmmaking at the time and went to France uh so there's a lot of pain that surrounds the the um the subject matter of the film and the production of the film and um and also it's it's kind of a shame because this is one of the I feel like this is one of the most striking and effective anti-racism films uh ever made because Fuller uh finds a way to turn this really complex uh issue of racism into this microcosm of the story about this dog and it just kind of almost shows you uh the horrors of racism almost as as almost like a mental poison that someone can be conditioned and one once people are conditioned you know there it's it's incredibly hard to take that that poison out it's it's, it's incredibly hard to recondition that racism and he takes that that idea of racism as a poison and puts it into this dog as almost like a universal way of uh dealing uh with the issue head on and i find it to be one of the most striking kind of um anti-racist films ever made so um it's it's kind of a shame that that happened but i also feel like at least through some uh home video releases uh people can can seek it out and uh as a big fan of samuel fuller this is still my favorite film of his so um what did you uh was this again the first time you watched it ryan and what'd you think about it it is the first time i watched this one um i'm actually a little conflicted on this movie um and and it should be i think the the one thing that i really the movie has got brass balls that's the one thing that i like really took away from the movie the fact that this movie even got made at all the fact that samuel fuller is so in your face and confrontational about it is excellent and i think that's where the movie's strongest i i i think and i I need to watch it again because just hearing your description made me appreciate it more and i certainly greatly appreciate it but i feel like the movie just just as a movie like a story plot like Mm -hmm. it it didn't it didn't work for me past a metaphorical level Mm -hmm. for the most part um mainly because i had an issue i it was the like the versimilitude of the movie it was hard for me to get in mainly because i'm like okay if you're just watching this as a movie like like i got the greater points that fuller was trying to make and it Mm -hmm. wasn't until like 70 minutes into a movie where the credits roll at 86 minutes that Paul Winfield's character finally says why he's going to great lengths to reprogram this dog, which like I knew that's what he was doing and why he was doing it. But I was mm-hmm. like the movie had only worked so far metaphorically for me that I was like, OK, are they going to address that within the movie? Because if so, then so much of this doesn't make sense because they would have just put that damn dog down the second he killed anybody. Mm-hmm. But the thing yeah. I, I the thing I do appreciate, I appreciate how. It does lull you it in. Is, it is a fully functioning thriller at the same time. Like there, are yeah, some, there are moments yeah. that are that are that are thrilling, and the movie does like the way it doles out its information. At least like in Act One is very sparse because like you, a uh, man goes into Christy McNichols' house uh, and tries to rape her, and the dog attacks him, and he's a white man. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like, and then later on in the movie when the dog escapes, he does kill a black man in mm-hmm. a garbage truck, but. It, at that point, it's not, you yeah, know, at that it's point, not, you're, like you're the movie. Kinda, if, if you were just watching it cold, you would kind of be thinking like, oh, it's going to be like a Cujo like thriller. 
exactly because you're like at first you think oh the dog is very protective so the girl wants to keep the dog because he's great at like attacking this attack right and that was very clear to me why she wanted to keep like trying to you know try to fix and then he attacks the black actress and then you're just like oh okay maybe there's some like racial components to this like so he he kind of doles out this information gradually and it also it's almost like a subtle uh dig at kind of liberal uh racism as well that it takes so long to uh for this actress to kind of interact with a black person (laughs) until she realizes what's going on exactly so that's kind of interesting it's almost like halfway through the movie where it happens well good timing to bring that up because uh, jordan peele uh, explores a lot of that in get out uh that's like similar like liberal white uh issue um which i don't know if you've seen that yet or gotta yeah god yes i can't recommend that movie enough um but like that stuff was all great but i think for like just as a story and like character motivation because like for example like Kristen McNichol kind of flips on a dime when she finds out the dog had killed another person because like you you get this like sort of like cosmic connection with her and the dog mm-hmm. she's like oh this dog is protective that's and mm-hmm. he's done this terrible thing but I I do want to reprogram a, yeah. him it, but it, then it, she, she yeah. kind of flips really fast and so yeah. I'm like oh that that didn't like that sort of like metaphysical thing didn't go as far as I wanted to. Yeah, um, maybe, maybe her performance was kind of like just too quickly spun around uh, to that side. Yeah, but you can understand it. I mean, if if she would have, you know, she that what she saw beforehand was like, I mean, yeah, I mean the way that it like really like tears into the back of this like black actress is like that yeah. would have been the you know because then you, you clearly see that this dog is totally capable of killing someone so yes. that that's a little bit of a you know so like when you're in that kind of almost sp- have that spiritual connection to the dog why be so you know at least maybe uh, performance wise maybe she should have been more like forlorn about it instead of being like yeah we have to kill the dog now like just like really mm-hmm. like so there there's there are a lot there are a couple of like performance issues here and there um some of it can Paul be, Winfield's great though in this Paul movie. Paul Winfield's like, great. He's, he's, lives he's... is is awesome in this, and there are some like really <laughs> amusing parts. I just crack up at this that scene every time when he Wait, like throws he, darts. He throws at darts R2-D2. at R2D2 because <laughs> he's like this. Uh, he owns this with Paul Winfield's character. He owns this like kind of animal training facility for like to lend out for like these like wild animals to be lent out to like movies. Uh, and also, Dick Miller shows up for two minutes for just yeah, to give I, like was, uh, just to give directions to the main. It was very character. pleasant to see him. It was it's funny. always pleasant to see him. But uh, Dick Miller shows up with a monkey. Like that's you know how what more you do you, what more what can more you, do you want? want? <laughs> um, uh, but but yeah, it's it's uh, so yeah. He's like Burl Ives is the uh, one of the co-owners, and he's like bitching about like because this movie came out in 1982, so at the height of like the Star Wars mm-hmm. phenomenon and. He has this like cardboard cutout of R two D two, and he's like throwing darts at it because just he hates that like all this like mechanical shit is like uh, kind of favored over like trained animals and or something like that. But it's a it's it's a funny funny scene. But yeah, Burl Lives is like really good in this as well. Yeah, Christy McNichol can be a little bit like kind of flat, and um, 
His, I, I mean, some of the like odd performances or, or some of the like kind of almost exploitation like grittiness of the film, which that part of it to me really works. It almost looks. This was a studio film, but it almost looks like an indie. The training sequences to me are like it, it's such a weird mishmash of tone. Like the training sequences are like or, or the reprogramming uh, a dog work orange, if you will, uh, is that mm-hmm. he's like. <laughs> oh my uh, god, that pun. <laughs> <laughs> that's a bad it's a bad pun it's but, good uh, I, I like it um but like that that sort of stuff is like really like visceral and like terrifying because like you've seen what this dog can do at this point and so like just it it, it reminded me even though i'm like yeah this is a close set it reminded me of the movie roar where i'm yeah. just like oh my god anything bad could happen at any second no oh my <laughs> god this is terrible but then like he juxtaposed with like well the way that the dog goes ape shit is it's actually happening yeah, they didn't have cgi then so like no it's it's terrifying terrible, I mean, like terrifying. i know they got a stunt person there and they're in padding but it's still that's terrifying but then you juxtapose like later the dog like stalling seventeens out of his prison, mm-hmm. and then like just that shot of him hopping the electric mm-hmm. fence. I was like, this feels like camp almost. Yeah, like, yeah at that yeah. point, and, it's and such a you, weird. Like, did you see a lot of uh, Samuel Samuel Fuller films? I actually haven't. No, this is your first this is, one. It's my first introduction. Okay, so it. yeah, he is a director like that. He is a director that loves to play with uh, different tones and uh, co- co- conflating tones at the at the same time, and he's a very kind of he makes melodramas, but he makes them in such a kind of stark and in-your-face way without, like, the... He goes the opposite way from, like, usually the way melodramas are made. Just fit into that drum, melodrama mold at some point, and then they can be, like, really kind of gritty and mean and just, like, in a, in a, in a way that almost, like... You know, some of the films that Samuel Fuller made back in the, like, early 60s and uh, all throughout his career is just, like, you can watch them as as if they were, like really kind of in your face indie films that were made today. Right, so uh, I need to go back through and watch more of his movies and like it, it is that in your faceness that uh that I like I really appreciate it. So so maybe um, to and, me the, the confluent like the, the, the mix of that like there are a couple of like funny scenes like he he does it like that the, the dog escaping scene like you just hear the dog like you know just uh crying and you know it's just, it's 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 like making sounds while he's trying to come up there. It's it's almost like a scene that belongs in like a uh, like a cute kitty like dog movie or so like Homeward Bound or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then like you have the like terrifying attack scenes that that are like that that are straight up Cujo, and mm-hmm. then you have the the social commentary that is like very stark and very kind of brave uh yeah. so it's like he, it's like a very stiff cocktail that, yeah, it, that yeah, doesn't go yeah, down yeah, yeah. easy yeah so it's it's it doesn't go down easy if you're not like used to samuel fuller's work so it, it makes sense that it was a little bit striking to you cause, because i remember i think the first samuel fuller film i've ever watched was uh shock corridor and i had the same kind of feeling of like i can see why people love this movie but it is all over the place. Like it's it's hard to pinpoint what he was trying to go for. And after a while, you start watching his other f- stuff, and then you start realizing that oh, he's trying to go for everything, <laughs> basically. Awesome. Well, no, I I have to get more. It's a movie that I would definitely like clearly be open to watching again. Like just just honestly, just listening, to, like unpacking it with you, I have a greater, even greater appreciation than I already had yeah, it's, with it's... The movie. I was just kind of like I was like I was like man I this movie's got balls and I greatly appreciate that I'm not totally sure how it worked for me yeah like and, and, as a movie itself yeah yeah and and what it says about racism especially at the time when 
films that frank about the subject matter and that's what fuller did a lot of the time it's just yes. like made feel movies about the subject matter around the time when no one was like touching it with a 10-foot pole and this was definitely like the early 80s uh republicans have kind of taken over and uh you know people were like okay it's healing time in america like that was kind of like the attitude and to come up with a film like this that's like no <laughs> yeah. like this is like ingrained into our culture this is ingrained into the people and the film is kind of like there's maybe some hope but maybe not also like it's it's kind of says that maybe this stuff is just there to stay and it's ingrained and it's it's uh i find it really interesting like the backstory of like you know if you take the backstory of the dog and like apply it to the the grander scheme of uh the subject of racism of how you know, there's that scene where um, the trainer says, you know, talks about how a dog could be trained to become a white dog, which is basically you just hire a bunch of uh, winos or homeless people who are black and just like pay them to like beat the shit out of the dog when he's a puppy. So that mm -hmm. all he does, all he knows is that black skin, people with black skin is a threat. And then he just attacks to kill. And uh, that's that to me is a very ballsy kind of commentary about um, it's real. First of all, like that's it's not just like put into the movie that, that like that's how white dogs are actually bred and actually trained. But at the same time, for him, for Fuller to make sure that we get how that's being done, what causes the racism in this dog, that it's it is like a real kind of fear that the dog has. But it comes out of place that white people have artificially inserted into that dog. Uh, the racism was artificially inserted into that dog's mind by, by um, you know, hiring people who actually weren't a threat, who were kind of made to look like a, a threat from the the from the time when he was a puppy. So it, it also it's like kind passing of... that ugly gene through generations. Yes. Like yes. really in that, in that similar way. It's, it's almost just like, like making teach... sure that happens. Like it's like a, it becomes like a generational thing. It's just like goes down and it's almost saying like, this is what happens unless like someone mm -hmm. just cuts it at the, at the core. Exactly. Uh, which is the, which is a beautifully like, of. you know, scene when Paul Winfields is just like, you know, it's like, if I, He's like, if you kill it, does nothing for it. But if you can cure it, like you could start there, like you could start there with that cure. And it's I think, uh, yeah, at least that's the yeah. place to start. So I, I think it's a very insightful. If I understand that it's technically imperfect, like some of the yeah, there, and I'm not some, and I'm not odd, knocking it. There are some odd that. line readings. Uh, it definitely does have the feel, even though it was a studio project. It definitely has the feel of like, like a almost like. You know, maybe because some of my love for this film comes from my love for, you know, we always talk about this on the show as well, that I love trash, like exploitation that's made by really talented people. And I do uh, too. And it, it's kind of like that kind of a movie. Like, you know, we talk about like Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia and all these like kind of exploitative movies in the past. And this to me kind of falls into that category. There's There's a lot of stuff in this movie that kind of feels like, uh, kind of a cheap thriller about this like vicious attack dog and it's so funny that like at one point I guess fucking Don Simpson among all people was a producer on it on God. the project <laughs> and and the way that he tried to sell it was by calling it Jaws with Paws 
Oh God, I did see that. I read the IMDb <laughs> trivia and I saw that. I was like, oh my God, I'm glad that did not happen. So there, uh, are, there are those elements in the movie of like the dog is just like goes crazy and attacks people and like rips them to shreds and there's all this like beautiful slow motion that like Samuel Fuller can like stage an action scene incredibly well. Absolutely. Well, it was, it, you know, it's a film that I am certainly glad that I've seen and uh, I look forward to eventually revisiting it and uh, looking more into uh, yeah, Samuel Fuller. Check out, check out some of his other films and I would, I would kind of have to say that like if people listen to this episode and if they want to check out the film or any other Samuel Fuller film, it's, if it's your first foray into his work, um, they're probably going to have a similar experience as you. They're probably going to like really appreciate what he's going for while being kind of a little bit dumbfounded about like the confluence of tones and um, the the mishmash of uh, like kind of cheap, you know, indie exploitation kind of feel to it mixed with like very self-serious approach to social issues. So it's a... Yeah, it's it'll definitely like it's it's kind of a he's an acquired taste and it takes a little bit of time for you to like really get into it. By the yeah. time you watch like your second or third film by him, you you're aware of it. Like I'm sure if you watch like for example down the line if you after watching White Dog, if you watch like Shock Corridor or something, you're going to be like, "Okay, I'm I know what I'm getting into," you know. Oh yeah, absolutely. It'd be like, you know, Sam Peckinpah, you know, going to see watching one of his movies. Like, oh, yep, I know I know what <laughs> what i'm gonna get into with this um yeah but this over, w- overall do you think like it's one of it's it's very like do you, do you feel like people should check it out yes, as at absolutely least, uh... like i would i would not hesitate to uh i would not let my hesitation uh detour anyone's hesitation because as you could listen by our discussion there's a lot to dig into and uh, i think while this movie was the hardest to find for years and years and years and years, uh, I think in terms of today, this might actually be the easiest one to find because it did come out in 2008, uh, this particular DVD. There's a pretty good uh, DVD transfer of it. And also the fact that it was um, kind of released after all those years, I think Criterion really made it a point to like restore it really well. So the DVD actually looks really good um, right. compared to the Burmese Harp and especially Knights of Kiberia. Uh, and there's also a um, again, if you have a region-free Blu-ray player, you can get a uh, British uh, Blu-ray of White Dog from the same people that released uh, the Burmese Harp. Um, uh, it's the Eureka uh, Masters of Cinema series, and the Blu-ray transfer is uh, gorgeous. I I have it. Um, I just watched it like a couple days ago. Nice. So you can seek that out as well. Awesome. Oh, yeah, well, there's a lot lot to unpack and a lot of things, uh, you know, for our listeners to get, get to watching. These are three movies that, you know, we, you know, Octave clearly recommends. They're all his picks, and I'm I'm right there with you. I, w- I would recommend people see all three of these movies as soon as they can. Um, so before, before we uh, sign off, we have to pitch uh, our next episode, uh, and we're going to have uh, a guest here uh one of our writers of the playlist andrew crump is going to be joining us mm-hmm. uh on the episode and he's going to be bringing us his picks uh and his picks uh are going to be 
So for the overrated pick is uh, the Wachowski sisters' seminal uh, 1999 film, uh, The Matrix. And for underrated uh, will be a film or will be uh, 2013's uh, The World's End, Edgar Wright's film, uh, which we just talked about Shaun of the Dead uh, a couple months back. Uh, but we yeah, didn't really we, get to dive into The World's End. Yeah, um, we, we got so. into it a little bit. But yeah, it's like, I consider it to be underrated as well. So it's going to be and yep. I and The Matrix was on my list for overrated for the longest time. I've been like kind of uh, wanting to get to it for a while. But yeah, I'm really looking forward to um to talking to Andy, he's also a, he's a um, uh, he's also a playlist uh, critic and contributor, so that's going to be fun. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, so so look out for that. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess without further ado, we have to thank Rodrigo Perez and everyone at the playlist for hosting us uh, on their site. Uh, you can check out this podcast on uh, iTunes, uh, on SoundCloud, or or just click the link uh, on the playlist site. Uh, you can always leave us a comment or a rating. Let us know what uh, we're doing right and what we can improve on. Or if you have some picks that we may not have thought of, uh, definitely shoot those our way. Uh, you can also like us on Facebook at Over Under Movies and follow us on Twitter at Over Under Movies. Uh, signing off is Ryan Oliver. I'm a contributor here at theplaylist.net. Signing off, this is Oktay Gekozak. I'm a contributor and film critic. For the playlist, uh, bayasparta.com, DVD Talk, and Oregon Herald. And we'll be back uh, with Andy's picks in a couple weeks. Thank you for listening.